0: Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year, Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Aaron Cariotti. He is professor of psychiatry at the UC Irvine School of Medicine and director of the Medical Ethics Program at the UC Irvine Health. He is here today to... He's written for us before. You've seen his name in the magazine. He's here today to discuss vaccines and Public policy, on which he's become a leading commentator in the United States. Welcome, Dr. Carianti.
1: Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Big fan of the magazine, and I, I love your podcast. So, thank, thank you. Looking thank forward you. to our conversation.
0: Uh, let's begin with early 2020. Let's just go back before before the getting the vaccine issue. When did you first hear about this outbreak taking place in China?
1: So, yeah, it was certainly early. 2020, we uh, we were paying close attention to this, as I think the rest of the world was being at the hospital. We were starting to think about pandemic planning. And, you know, in in December, January, December 2019, January 2020, there was still a lot of uncertainty. Um, Was this going to spread? What is the infection fatality and the case fatality rate? How worried about this should we be? Yeah. and, you know, by February, obviously, and certainly certainly March, we were in full-scale COVID 24-7, both at the hospital and actually the entire university. So I spent the first six months of the, the outbreak of the pandemic in the United States doing worst-case scenario planning. Mark, I was working with the UC Office of the President on basically our ventilator triage guidelines, yeah. and we were, we were writing these guidelines thinking – that we might have to use them in a matter of weeks. Now, fortunately, the initial surge of COVID cases in the hospital, first of all, was delayed. So the the hospital was emptied out and there was no one there for weeks and weeks, which is very strange, Hmm. Uh, almost surreal. You know, when the lockdowns first started, the cases did not roll in right away as people had anticipated. Um but we were we didn't know that in advance and we were working nights, days and weekends to try to come up with a policy that would be acceptable to the public on what what do you do if your if the demand for ventilators exceeds the supply in, in spite of our best efforts to transfer patients and, you know, source more ventilators and use our portable ventilators and turn operating rooms into ICU rooms, so on and so forth. Nonetheless, that possibility was still there that um, that we would have to make difficult decisions. So that was the first several months of the pandemic for me is is sort of helping my department figure out how to care for patients and um, and encouraging medical students uh, and, and residents that were dealing with this novel pandemic. But at a policy level, I was very much engaged in worst case scenario planning. Yeah. Um, and that, that warfare metaphor, which started early, uh, never quite subsided, even after we learned more about the virus and got to places where um, that's probably not the right way to think about what we're dealing with. But I mean, Australia and New Zealand and and Austria are still in full-scale wartime mode. Well, that that was that, um, that, is, that was
0: actually my, my next question. In those say those first six months of 2020. How did your assessment of official responses to the disease and to its spread, how did that change significantly in the first half of 2020? Yeah, it did,
1: it, it evolved. I mean, what, although there were some things that I saw right from the beginning that were trends that were, that were continuing throughout the pandemic, and one of them was this, this kind of noble lie, we're, we're not gonna tell people what is the case, we're not going to tell people what we know and what we don't know. We're going to tell people what we think they need to hear in order to do what we think they should do.
0: Yeah.
1: The, the messaging was always crafted around. You begin with the behavioral goal in mind, um, and and then you tell people what you want, what what you think they need to hear in order to achieve that behavioral goal. And I saw that very early. On with masking in the hospital. So I, I, I mean, I remember a time where nurses in my hospital, early in the pandemic, were getting screamed at in, in the hallway by hospital administrators in front of their colleagues for wearing masks.
0: For They're wearing masks. masks.
1: Hard, yeah, hard to believe now. But if you if you look back into the archives of official advice early on. Um, In the hospital, all the N95s were supposed to only go to people who were at the bedside with a COVID-confirmed case. Hmm. So other people who wanted to wear N95s or even surgical masks um, were being chastised for not wearing them. Now, the reason they were being chastised is not because masks didn't work. Um, We actually didn't know if they worked at that time. Um, And... The reason they were being chastised is that we didn't have enough masks, right? Uh, so, but that's not what people were told. So, I was I was concerned early on that uh, by our lack of preparedness. I mean, N95 masks, you know, are cost pennies. Why wasn't there a warehouse in Kansas stockpiled with millions of these that could be shipped to the four corners overnight if there was a flu pandemic? Yeah. Right. Um, that just seemed like sensible planning. Um, so, I mean, one of the things I did early on is I called up local construction companies, I had some contacts among um, friends or, or patients, and, uh, and I sourced about 695s from construction companies, and I gave them out to my colleagues in the emergency department that didn't have any, they, they, these masks were all under lock and key in the hospital, um, you know, and if you took one basically without permission, you were going to get chastised. So I handed them out to my colleagues in, in ER and in my own department, who were uh, the psychiatrists who were consulting uh, on COVID patients in the main hospital. And then I donated the rest to, to the hospital. So uh, so there was a lack of preparedness. Um, there was a, an unwillingness to tell people the truth. Um, it started with the masks um, and and then it went on from there. And and that that trend has continued. Hmm. Right. So, uh, talking about vaccines now, for example. Well, let, let me let me uh, ask one, you one are... quick.
0: Let me ask one quick question, uh, but before getting to the vaccine issue, uh, Aaron, yeah. were were Southern California hospitals seriously overcrowded at any point? There,
1: there were uh, there were a few weeks in 2020 where, um, if we had not prepared for a surge with you know, some tents and converting other rooms, that we would have exceeded our capacity. Yeah, um, We never did exceed our capacity. Um, we didn't even come dangerously close to exceeding our capacity. But if we hadn't spent a couple of months preparing, that could have been an issue. Um, I think at the end of the day, we may do much of that. Um, you know, they sent that hospital ship out here that just sat in Los Angeles, um, port and you know that was never utilized. A lot of the stuff that we prepared was never utilized, um, but we never got to the point where we didn't have enough, um, uh, you know, equipment to treat people. And probably the bigger danger was too many healthcare workers getting sick at the same time. Hmm. And uh, you know, we can always get more ventilators one way or another, but it's hard to get another ICU physician or nurse. I mean, it's you know highly trained person that if too many of them go out at once, that could create difficulty. So there was a lot of concern about personnel shortages. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing that we were short on, Mark, really interesting, turned out to be blood. Um, one of those things that people didn't foresee after the lockdowns, huh. people didn't go and donate blood. Huh. Hospitals were still needing units of blood for their routine work. Um, so I also kind of pushed for uh blood drive campaign among the medical students to help our own blood bank that was one of the other things i did early on is i went and gave blood you know sent a message to all the students hey i just gave blood come and come and give blood this is something you can do to help um you know and uh but but the messaging uh, the, the the messaging continued to be um uh behavioral manipulation rather than conveying information, right? And, and when you're conveying information on complex topics, you're going to have to oversimplify, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to take complex science and make it intelligible to the general public. So that's not what I'm talking about. That's that's necessary, right? Oversimplifying is sometimes necessary. Yeah, um, but oversimplifying for the purpose of making something intelligible to people is one thing. That's a good thing. Um, oversimplifying deliberately, deliberately leaving out information because you think it may change people's behavior in a direction you don't want. Um, you know, there, there's a name for that. It's called propaganda. Mm -hmm. Um, and I saw the propaganda at work very early on in the pandemic. It, It took me some time to realize that that's what it was. Um, And I would say after that initial surge and after we got through the whole crisis standards of care question, uh, the, the prolonged lockdowns really made no sense to me. I saw the mental health harms of those. I published a piece in Public Discourse called The Other Pandemic last year about the rising rates of suicide, substance use, depression, anxiety, especially among young people as a consequence of. Of the lockdowns, So I was very worried that our public health response during the pandemic was only focused on one virus. People were only looking at COVID case curves.
0: Well, I, I have to say that, that, Aaron, this was my, my issue, that uh, the, the other health impacts on kids, when you, mm-hmm. when, you put, when, when you tell them all to go to their rooms and get on their computers, and you tell them not to interact with one another in real time. You, you put police tape around the parks, as, as they did in, in my neighborhood. Is there much worse emotionally
1: and, no, and, and intellectually than putting 15-year-olds in their room with a
0: screen all day? Listen, one of the worst punishments,
1: penal punishments, that we can inflict on people, um, you know, other than capital punishment. Uh, is solitary confinement? Yeah, uh, it's a form of torture. It's arguably a form of torture. Um, it's it, you know a person who stays in solitary confinement long enough, literally will lose their mind. Huh. You you start to hallucinate. You the, the, we are we are hardwired to connect with other people. We human beings are social animals. We we're, we're built to be in relation with other people and to isolate ourselves. Uh, And to communicate only via screens, which is not the same as being together in person, uh, is profoundly damaging to people. And, you know, 15 days to flatten the curve. okay, Um, But the idea that we could stay locked down until we got a vaccine was really reckless and did enormous harms that will take decades to to fully manifest and play out.
0: Yeah, Um, I'm I'm not saying that. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that I, I that they were wrong. I'm you know I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a public health expert at all. But well, it just seems that that wasn't it. that issue that side wasn't factored into their decision making or their discussion at all.
1: That's right. That's right. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was entirely ignored. Um, and you know politicians were were trying to outcompete one another to appear to be doing something. Yeah. about the virus. And so the more extreme the response, you know, the, 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 the I guess the more seriously people perceive that they were taking taking the issue. So it became this kind of mimetic rivalry to um, to, to place more and more um, restrictions on people and restrictions that had no plausibility or grounding in public in public health. Yeah. I mean, locking down could never stop the virus. All it could do is slow its spread, but as soon as you open up, it begins to spread again. I mean, Australia New Zealand, New Zealand are still dealing with that because they don't have they don't have a population with significant natural immunity from infection. Um, the, the vaccines don't work very well, uh, so uh, you know eventually COVID is going to have to spread in the, in those countries. There's no way around that. COVID's not going away. It's going to become endemic. Um there's animal reservoirs. Even if we eradicate it in human beings, there's there's at least a dozen species that it can circulate in and hmm. you know, we're we're not going to get rid of all those animals. Um so it'll it'll mutate and then reinfect human beings. Uh it's with us forever. And um and social distancing, masking, locking down, all of these things try to stop its spread are only A- A- delaying the time between now and when everyone on the planet eventually gets exposed to the virus, which is Aaron, going to happen.
0: Aaron, what, what, what you've just said is striking. One never hears that remark about COVID is here. It's going to be part of our lives. We need to absorb it uh, somehow. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it is endemic. Uh, that, what, why aren't we hearing that we're out of our leaders? Is it just too negative? Yeah. It, we've gotten ourselves into a situation
1: in which the most basic truths of, you know, immunology and biology cannot be spoken because, um, I guess our leaders find that notion too terrifying and I, I should reassure our listeners, Mark. The notion that everyone is going to get exposed to COVID sounds terrifying because we've been conditioned to have a a strong fear response to this virus. But um, if you're under the age of uh, of 50, you have a 99.998% chance of surviving (laughs) your encounter with COVID, unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. Even better if you got the vaccine. But it's very, very good, um, and uh, and so th- the folks we need to worry about, Mark, are the, the folks who the age of seventy, um, because they they have not been exposed to COVID as children. Um, the fact that of COVID becoming en- endemic is not a big problem for the human population, because children will get exposed when they're very young. You'll, people will get exposed multiple times in their life. Their natural immunity. Uh, is is going to be very robust even after one exposure based on the science we have so far. It's going to get tuned up and even stronger after multiple exposures. Um, and uh, children don't die of COVID. The very tiny, tiny uh, handful of cases in children uh, are, are in children with Im- immunological problems. Yeah. You know, with o- other comorbidities that, that really account for The fact that this virus, just like, you know, an influenza virus might prove fatal to them. But aside from from those kids who who need to be protected, if we can, um, you know, we we have to try to protect the elderly. Um, But other people shouldn't be terrified of the idea of getting exposed to COVID Um, because we'll we'll manage it just fine.
0: all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at uh, udallas.edu. Let's let's move to the vaccine mandates because you've written a few important short pieces on this issue. You had, uh, earlier this year, you had a a co-authored op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that had the headline, the title, University Vaccine Mandates violate medical ethics what was your main argument there
1: so the argument there is at the time all the vaccines were under emergency use authorization uh, which means they were still experimental um, and uh, still are except for the except for the pfizer vaccine although the fda is not being transparent about releasing the data on which the approval was based that's another Issue I've been involved in submitted a FOIA request to the FDA because they're required to release that information after it's authorized, and they agreed to release it all by the year 2076. So, <laughs> so that's that's transparency at at, at the FDA. Um, but yeah, th- these these were these were attempts to uh, coerce people to participate in an experiment, which you can't do. Um, informed consent is the central ethical canon of all human subjects research, So college students you know, are not guinea pigs. There, there was also an important argument in that none of the vaccine policies were acknowledging natural immunity. And th- this is the same argument that's at the center of my lawsuit, which is challenging the University of California and the state of California's vaccine mandates. And that's that um, I, who have been infected with COVID, am 99% protected against reinfection, I have sterilizing immunity, which means not only do I, am I not going to get reinfected with COVID, I'm not going to pass it on to other people. There's, there's not a single documented case of a naturally immune person getting reinfected and transmitting the virus, whereas we know that's happening all the time with vaccine immunity. So I, 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 my immunity is 99% effective against reinfection. Someone who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine which by the company's own data submitted to the FDA was 67% effective um, and declining uh, after four months, that person is allowed back on campus. They're allowed to work at the hospital, whereas I'm not, right? So there's, I'm arguing an equal protection um, violation.
0: Okay, Aaron, aren't these people uh, who are the ones who say, uh, uh, probably trust the science.
1: A good, hard, empirical look at the science would call into question uh, much of our COVID response. Um, and kind of, I think the, the most blatant and egregious example of that is the refusal to acknowledge natural immunity uh, in our policies, in our herd immunity calculations, in our pandemic mitigation kind of planning. Uh, that's, it's, it's immunology 101 that's just kind of being ignored that um, people are pretending that it's not there. But the other, the other issue with the vaccine mandates, and I, I do want to mention this too, Mark, is that um, if we have a vaccine like the measles vaccine that prevented transmission of the virus, the, the public good, uh, public uh, common good sort of argument, well, maybe it's not going to help you very much because you're young or you already had COVID, but you should get the vaccine for the sake of other people. That argument might have more force if the vaccines that we have for COVID actually worked that way. But given that the empirical reality that we know about the vaccines is that they don't prevent infection and transmission, then the decision about whether to get vaccinated should be an individual decision that the traditional bedside ethics of informed consent and informed refusal should apply to the vaccines just like they will apply to a medication um, because the, the, the risks and benefits really accrue to the individual being vaccinated, right? not, to, not to the people around them. So, so that argument really falls apart for the vaccines that we currently have. Now, if there's a new vaccine that comes along that is sterilizing and is much more effective at actually stopping the spread of COVID, then I think you can make a more plausible case for vaccine mandates. Right. But that case can't be made now with the tools that we have. Um, It just doesn't. work.
0: Around the same time as the Wall Street Journal op-ed, you co-authored a piece with five others in The Federalist, asserting there that the vaccine mandates on college campuses, this is where it was really rigid, right, really laid down heavily, uh, actually put some students in danger. What was the evidence you were drawing on there?
1: So here's here's what's going on with uh, the whole issue of medical exemptions to vaccines. The constraints that were placed on physicians in terms of endorsing or writing medical exemptions were uh, excessively narrow. So uh, the only medical exemptions that these policies were acknowledging were things that were specifically named in the cdc's list of contraindications to the vaccines now the cdc published a list of contraindications to the vaccines based on just the early evidence that we had from the shortened clinical trials the cdc never claimed and never intended that list to be comprehensive there was never any claim that that list captured all the various reasons why the medical risks of these vaccines might outweigh the benefits for a particular individual. Uh, the CDC is, is not a medical organization. It's not a super doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a public health organization that makes recommendations for the containment of infectious diseases. But the judgments of the CDC shouldn't outflank and outweigh the judgments of a physician for a particular patient. Right. So a physician may have a patient with a rare condition that that physician knows more about than most physicians because uh, he's a specialist in this in this in this area. Um, that condition may be sufficiently rare that it doesn't show up on the CDC's list of contraindications. That physician needs some discretionary latitude to be able to say this patient shouldn't get the vaccine because yeah. it's going to harm her. Yeah. So that was one issue. But the other issue is the, the bullying from state medical boards. So I got a letter a few months ago from the state medical board in California saying, and this letter went to all physicians in California. If you write any inappropriate medical exemptions for masks, this is just after the mask mandate or other COVID related measures, your medical license could be subject to investigation and discipline. That's that's not a doctor being threatened with being fired from this hospital. That's a doctor threatened with being fired from this hospital and not being able to work as a physician ever again. Right? That, that's what losing your medical license means. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it'd be like being disbarred for a lawyer. Um, so that's very serious and very chilling. I, in my 17 years as a licensed physician, have never received another letter like this. My colleagues said the same thing. Every physician in California interpreted that to mean I shouldn't write medical exemptions. It's impossible now. And no one's been able to find me a counterexample to this. It's impossible now to find a physician in California who will write a medical exemption to a COVID vaccine. Um,
0: Aaron, Aaron what, why, why didn't, why didn't thousands of doctors rise up and say no to this? I'll make this There's decision. Scared.
1: So, yeah, it's a great question. And I think the answer is that they're scared and they're intimidated and they're not well organized. Uh, there is a backstory to this too, Mark, in California that has to do with vaccines in California. So California has eliminated, so for routine childhood vaccinations, not talking about COVID vaccines now, I'm talking about measles, mumps, polios, so on and so forth. Uh, over the last five to six years, California has, uh, has, has enacted a series of laws that have eliminated Religious exemptions to childhood vaccines um, and that have basically punished physicians who have written medical exemptions. Um, these laws are are usually put forward by Senator Pan, a pediatrician in california Senate uh, and they're they're backed by a lot of big pharma money and um, and so what's happening in California is a a couple of years ago, any physician who wrote more than five medical exemptions, like a pediatrician who, you know, treats autoimmune conditions where they they may have a lot of patients that have contraindications to vaccines. If you wrote more more than five medical exemptions in a year, your name was published publicly as being under investigation by the state medical board. There are now, I think, close to 10,000 physicians in California with their names on that list. All of their medical exemptions have been invalidated. So if you got a medical exemption for vaccines for your kid to go to school from one of those physicians, you have to go now to another physician to try to get a medical exemption. And other physicians are not writing them because they don't want their name to appear on that list. Now, obviously, the medical board is not going to actually investigate all 10,000 of those physicians to see if their medical exemptions were appropriate or inappropriate. Right, and they never intended to do that. What they intended to do is bully and intimidate physicians into um, not exercising their discretionary latitude for their individual patient, um, not really practicing medicine, just doing what uh, the state, or in this case, <laughs> the vaccine manufacturers, wanted them wanted them to do. So there's a backstory in California uh, to that most recent action by the state medical board, um, which is not, on this issue at least, not really working in the interest of, of physicians or, or patients who need physicians to be able to exercise their judgment at the bedside and make individualized recommendations. So, I mean, circling back to COVID policy, this is, this is the other big problem with our COVID policies in general, is that they're a one-size-fits-all policy, right? Everyone needs the vaccine. Well, no, the vaccines would have been much more effective if they had been deployed for the most at-risk populations, right? if natural immunity had been taken into account. Um, Targeted protection uh, for those most at-risk of bad outcomes from COVID rather than generalized lockdowns would have been more effective at saving lives uh, and also wouldn't have done the damage and the destruction that the widespread lockdowns. Did. So this kind of one size fits all, everyone has to do exactly the same thing, has been disastrous. But we we keep doing it. I mean, I, the the policies have never made a meaningful effort at risk stratification, understanding that the risks from COVID are a thousandfold different for an 85 year old versus a five year old, uh, and that taking the same approach to both individuals is Kind of crazy you,
0: you you mentioned the lawsuit which you filed in September uh, what yeah. what is the status of that case right now at the end of November here as we're as we're taping? Yeah,
1: so we submitted a request for a preliminary injunction um, with the district court. so the case is in federal court it's a constitutional Fourteenth Amendment, equal protection claim. Uh, we're in the central District of California. We submitted a request that would have basically halted the the application of the policy while the case was being heard. Um, Asking for that is a long shot. We knew it. We knew it was um, because basically the judge has to determine that the policy uh, is is likely not going to pass muster even before we go to trial, even before the fact finding process. So the judge denied that request for a preliminary injunction, Um, and. the, the day after that happened, the university placed me on investigatory leave, first on paid leave, and now, as of the fifteenth of this month, I'm on unpaid suspension. So the university um, is, is applying their policy in my cl- in my case, and um, you know, moving toward firing me because of uh, my non-compliance with the vaccine mandate. But um, but in terms of the the case itself. The university submitted a request basically to dismiss the case um, outright before going to trial. We had an opportunity to submit a response to that request. The judge is going to determine whether or not to go to trial or to dismiss the case. Soon, I anticipate that we'll go to trial and then then we'll enter the discovery phase where we get to depose their expert witnesses. I I and our expert witnesses will be deposed. And then we'll move to uh, we'll move to the trial, um, and we're we're prepared to appeal to the circuit court uh, if we lose at the district court level. Um, there's a couple of cases, similar cases elsewhere in federal court, and if it turns out that there's a split at the at the circuit court level, uh, you know, one one judge goes one way, one judge goes another way. Um, in deciding these cases, the Supreme Court would have to, on appeal, you know, resolve that circuit court split. I think the Supreme Court is not inclined to take up cases on COVID policy right now and be be a referee on those things. But but if we ended up in a situation where there's two cases, uh, you know, based on this natural immunity equal protection type of argument that are decided differently in federal court. That's, that's a situation that most likely the Supreme court would have to resolve. So, so that's I, where the case is at currently. Um,
0: have any of your colleagues stepped forward to support your position?
1: Um, I have a lot of supporters from the university of California as a whole. Um, the, the, the people at UCI, I, I think there's a lot of people that are sympathetic to my position. Um, it's hard uh, in that climate, Mark, to be public about that. Yeah. Um, Especially when and, they and see I, how I, the
0: how the university ca- has exactly, come down with a sledgehammer. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, this is a pretty pretty
1: pretty effective um, you know making an example out of out of someone. And yeah. so yeah. I, I certainly wouldn't I certainly wouldn't ask or expect them to be supportive in any in any public way, I, I, it's hard to see that doing them or anyone else a whole lot of, a whole lot of good. But yeah, many of them have reached out to me privately, um, you know, just to see how I'm doing and, you know, say that they missed having me around and I hope you're okay. And, and, and some of them have reached out actually, you know, thanking me for taking this, this stand. I mean, I've received a flood of correspondence more than I can possibly even read. I have to confess, um, of, of people you know, thanking me for trying to trying to fight this fight in court. Um, a lot of people have lost their jobs over this. and um, You know, people, people don't forget when they're treated that way uh, in, a, in a kind of arbitrary and discriminatory fashion. Well, I'm just uh, not
0: sure what, what, the, what the medical experts can say if it is not a controversial point at all that natural immunity uh, that you have— is stronger than vaccine immunity. It's not. No, the objections
1: to acknowledging natural immunity are more pragmatic. You know, it's going to it's going to complicate the efficient vaccine rollout process if we have to kind of test people or, you know, most of the arguments have to do with efficiency and simplicity, Uh, not uh, not uh, denying the empirical fact of of natural immunity, you know, actually the resistance on the part of the CDC, I think, Mark, is basically the CDC would see it as an admission of policy failure if they recognize natural immunity, because the, the next step is, OK, well, how many people have natural immunity and they finally have to do the most basic immunological study that should have been done, you know, monthly during the entire course of the pandemic, which is how many people have already been infected. Right. The Two most basic numbers in immunology for any disease. The first two stats that every med student learns about every disease is incidence and prevalence. How many people over a given period of time get a new case? How many total cases are there over a given period of time? The fact that we don't know 21 months into the pandemic how many Americans have had COVID is crazy, Hmm. right? But the the, the number, by most estimates, is over 50 percent. Really? And so, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was like 36 percent when the CDC looked at this and tried to do some estimates way back in May. But that was before the Delta variant. Uh, so yeah, it's it's probably more than half of Americans, whether they know it or not, have already had COVID. Um, and and you know that means that we locked down, we scrubbed surfaces, we put on masks, we you know, we destroyed businesses, we did all these things to stop the spread of the virus. And guess what? The virus did what viruses do, which is to say it spread. And the CDC doesn't want to acknowledge natural immunity because that would mean answering the question about how many people have it. Uh, And that would show clearly, I think, that a lot of the policies of 2020 were were failures. Um, That's not disastrous either because most people do fine with COVID. Um, it's the aged that we should have done more to protect. Um, I mean, really, what we should have done: people in nursing homes, for example, from the very beginning, um, put everyone in nursing uh, that works at a nursing home on paid leave. You know, pay them double, whatever you need to do, uh, so that you don't harm them. Um, hire back the ones who have already had COVID. <laughs> hire people that have already had COVID and train them up to staff those nursing homes, put a natural immunity shield around the vulnerable in those places that could have been done even before the vaccines. Um, we didn't do that, you know, in places like New York, they deliberately sent infected people to nursing homes and killed a bunch of people. Uh, meanwhile, locking down other people that could have been exposed to COVID and done just fine. So, um, yeah, I could go on and on about our failures but you know at this time at this point I think it's time for people to sort of wake up and, and ask how effective have we been in listening to um, li- listening to the, the experts and how effective ha- have these policies been and if they haven't been effective why are we still listening to them
0: yeah. well uh, we're going to pay close attention to your case. Aaron, we'd love to have you write about the case for us at, at First Things. Uh, when, 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 when the dust settles, uh, yes. or, or, you, or before that, from, from our perspective, uh, we'll post this. We will we'll have links to the writings. That you, there are a few more that I didn't mention, uh, but we'll have links to that, and we will, uh, we'll see what happens.
1: Very good. Well, I've enjoyed the conversation, Mark.